Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 48th episode of the PJ Archive. It's an interview with the British singer-songwriter, musician, actor and TV presenter Peter Noon, best known as the lead singer of the 1960s pop group Herman's Hermits. This interview took place in London in 1993, when US-based Peter was planning to tour the UK for the first time in how long? It's more than 25 years. We can't remember when the last tour, the last theatre tour, was, but I remember it was Herman's Home, it's the Love Affair and Dave Berry. Right. Was the people on the tour. So whenever Love Affair were hot, that was when it was probably 68 or... It could have been 67, 68 or 69. It's a long, long time not to have done that. But probably good that I didn't. It's much better to come back... As something special than to just keep coming back for a, you know, do butlins or something, you know what I mean? Uh, you're also coming back as Peter Noon rather than as Herman's Hermits, aren't you? Why is well, that? That's why I didn't come back, because everybody, every time somebody offered me the opportunity to tour in England, it was always that I had to reform Herman's Hermits. And I said, it's just completely out of the question. And if you want to tour Peter Noon, then we can talk. And then the silver flying music, whatever it's called... We spoke last year, you know, we talked about a tour last year and we weren't available for that one, and then we talked all year until we got to this one. Why do you say it's out of the question to reform Herman's Hermits? First of all, one of them is dead, so it couldn't be the original anyway, and, and second, it, the reason that I've not toured for 20 years is so that people will begin to act. I would like a career as Peter Noon as well as being one of Herman's Hermits, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, but you have had an extremely successful career as Peter Noon, haven't you? I mean, I don't think In anyone really... I don't think... It, yes, but I don't think anyone really confuses you now, do they? No, they don't. That's why they're able to now call me Peter Noon and not, you know, oh. Peter Noon, formerly Herman of Herman, so you knew the Dave Clark Five and the Beatles. So that's good. That's what I wanted. And, and the, the reality of the thing is that it took me 20 years in America to make people... Herman Summers was so huge that it's taken me 20 years to get to where I am in America where people don't mention Herman to me all the time. They talk, I love to talk about Herman Summers. It's a great thing to talk about. It's a great, magical moment. But at least I have a new following of people who are more interested in Peter Noon what I do now. You know, the t- it's TV. Do the other guys want to uh, get back together with you? Do you ever talk about it? Every year for the last 20 years, we've had the conversation. And it would be very destructive to the process that I put myself in, which was going from a $25,000 a night act to, to a $2,500 a night act, or, you know, whatever that is in pounds, and spending 20 years not taking the $25,000 a night and then going back and getting 12500 a night. You know, and it's, that's not my idea of great business. So you're saying that they'd like to get back together, but you don't, is basically... And those, some of them didn't want me to get back together again. They were very happy with the status, the, the status quo that was that, that they would be Herman's Hermits without me and I would be Peter Noon without them. But the sound would never be the same without you, would it? Well, I'm glad you said that. I would say that the, uh, the sound of Herman's Hermits was Mickey Most's production and Peter Noon's vocals. Because I read somewhere that uh, most of the band didn't actually play on the records, that they used session musicians instead, inclu- including Jimmy Page and... Uh, that's not really fair. I mean, that's, that's people who want us to look like the monkeys, which we weren't. The biggest hits that we had, I'm Into Something Good, that was the Hermits played on that. Uh, I'm in Henry VIII and Mrs. Brown, they played on that. They didn't play on some of them, but that was basically because, because Mickey Most 
wanted the records done a certain way and it and to do that to facilitate the speed of making records which was to do an album in three hours he would use Jimmy Page on guitar instead of Derek Leckerman and I will say in in just in their support in their favor that sometimes by the time we'd actually gone on the road and done the song for six weeks it was much better than the record you know so they actually got to Derek Leckerman actually end up playing silhouettes better than Jimmy Page now, I know you've, you, you want to press ahead with your career and everything else and forget Herman's Hermits, mm. but do you ever allow yourself a bit of nostalgia? Do you ever sit back and play the records and have a chat with the lads and everything? I, I'm very nostalgic for Herman's Hermits. I mean, that's to my good fortune because I do know people who don't want to talk about the past and everything, but that is a glowing moment in my past, and I'm very happy always to talk about Herman's Hermits. And people sometimes have misunderstood taken quotes that from that's been changed and found that I don't want to talk about Herman Subs. I've never done that. I've never done that. I've said I don't want to sing those songs for a while. Give me a break from those songs for a while. But I've never said I don't want to talk about Herman Subs. I have to. It's the most important thing I've ever done. It's like Frank Sinatra not talking about Hoboken, New Jersey and the band he was in there. You know, I mean, it's just... And that's one of my favourite lines. You know, well, Frank Sinatra used to be in a band as well, but he doesn't have to carry their name around with him for the rest of his life. So what made you come back now and sing these songs? Because I'd like to... I love this, First of all, I love the songs, and I have to learn them again, which is really bizarre. Like, I don't know the words to My Sentimental Friend because I haven't sung it since 1971. I don't know something's happening. I don't know years may come. I don't know... I know some of all you pretty things because I played at home on the piano for fun, uh, but I don't know all of it. And now I'm going to have to learn them all. I mean, I'm actually going to have to go and buy a Herman's Hermits record, an English one, because you can't find those songs in America, because those ones were never released in America. But you said that there have been thoughts for some time, or even plans for some time, to try and get you back together again with Herman's Hermits and things. But, so what is it that has made you come back and sing at least their songs this time? Well, I think of them as my songs. It's, I know that sounds like a spoiled brat, and that's probably the truth, but I think that they're my songs. I think that it was Peter Noon and Mickey Most's and the Hermits songs. And, uh, you know, I'm into something good. I don't think it's a Carol King song anymore. I think I did it better than she did it, so therefore it's now mine. You still haven't quite answered the question. What, what oh, made sorry, you do what this you... tour? What, what made you oh, want to okay, do this tour? that's the question. What made me do this tour is because I've wanted to do this tour for a long, long time. I asked other people who'd been who'd done business with these people, like Frankie Valli and Neil, da- Neil Sedaka and Gene Pitney, because I see them because they're in America. What's it like? And they said, it's absolutely fabulous. It's exactly like 1965, 66, where you go on a tour, everything's taken care of. They take care of it like Americans, you know, which means that all the travel and all that stuff, you don't, like, have to wait until the van's loaded up and then climb on top of a Vox AC-15. It's all taken care of. So I've been wanting to do it for a long time. It's like two years ago. I came to England, and I was unknown, and that really hurt my feelings. Because in America, I was famous and the cab drivers and the people at the airport. And I got off the airport here, unknown person. Nobody said, there's Peter Noon, there's Herman even. Just, there's a businessman from America. And somebody called me a yank because I was saying, where's the gas station? Or something, you know, so, I, so I've got to go and do something in England. And I'm, I'm hoping that my VH1 show runs over here on this VH1. But you can never, it's all about rights and releases and all that legal stuff, which I don't want to get bothered with. So anyway, these people came and they talked about doing a tour last year. But I wasn't available, I was too busy last year. And, uh, and then they came up with this idea and I said, Who's gonna, who else is on the show? And they mentioned the Trogs, which for me is like hilarious. I mean, it's a fun, fun band, the Trogs. I mean, the, you know, the, their most famous re- in record in America is the 
is the Trogs outtake thing, you know, it's fairy dust tape. And it's unusual that they've sold 200 million copies of that in about, through bootleg things. And, and Wild Thing, I mean, I know all their songs. And Freddie and the Dreamers and Wayne Fontana, I mean, we, all, we were one, two and three in the charts in America one week. Were you all rivals one day? And does it seem strange now that you're going to be mates on tour together? I don't think there was any... I don't think rival... Everybody was different, weren't they, in those days? I mean, I wish I'd... I'm telling you now, because in America people request that I sing it. Sing I'm telling you now. I said, that was Freddie and the Dreamers. But now I do it. When people shout out, Ferry Across the Mersey, life goes on day. I just do them all now. If they think it's mine, I'll take it. So, but to, to go out with the Trogs, and, and the, the best part of the whole trip so far was... I, I was in Liverpool, I flew all night from America, I went to do this good morning, then I got on the train back to do the photo session. And I walked into this room and there's Freddie Garrity and Wayne Fontana and Reg Presley, and we're doing a, a photo session. I laughed, I, I, I'm sure none of the pictures came out good because I was just like creased up with laughter the whole time because they're all very funny people. And I'd forgotten, you know, when you live in America, you forget that stuff, that banter, that repartee that is purely English and that only we get. Because when I first got to America, I used to upset people by saying the same kind of lines that Freddie was saying to me, you know, like the, the, your clothes and your mum and, you know, your mum's curtains. And I mean, I was like falling back because I hadn't had that opportunity. It was, like, it was like waking up in the rover's return, you know. You say that you want to do this tour because, in a way, you, you want to up your profile again. And yet you're doing it, uh, you're going to be doing the songs thing. So the people are going to, again, going to remember you in this way rather than in any other way. Don't you think sort of defeating their object, really? No, because I, when I go and see Frank Sinatra, I want to hear him sing Set Him Up, Joe. And that's 45 years old. You know, and I, I liked it when Paul McCartney started to do some Beatles songs in his show. I thought, that's good, that's balls, I said to myself. He's got balls now, because now he's doing Beatles material in the show. Because he, he said for so long that he was never going to do that, you know, he wouldn't, like, lean on that. And... I, I'm, I've always chosen the wrong things. Like, I supported the war in Vietnam. I, you know, I mean, I was, always the wrong, I was always the odd man out. And I thought it was great that the Beatles broke up because we would get four albums a year instead of one. You know, I was really happy that George Harrison got to make that album. You know, I thought, oh, it's great that they've broken up because, look, it's so much better. We've got four different people who get all these other people on their records instead of just having four guys on the record. So, anyway, so I was always the politically incorrect Englishman on those things. So... I just think it, they're my songs. I, people think of, if, when people see me on the television, if I don't see I'm into something good, they're disappointed. It's like going to a concert for Elvis and he doesn't sing Jailhouse Rock. For me, Jailhouse Rock. For these modern fans, it's my way. They want to hear him sing my way. About uh, 12 or so years ago, you did uh, The Pirates of Penzance, for instance, to great success. Mm -hmm. And we sort of wondered why you didn't capitalise on that and do more of that kind of... Or do you want to keep your career very versatile? Well, I, I do, you know, it's just that that was the only one that I actually got from Broadway to England. But I've done other Broadway shows in America that didn't come over here. You know, I did Romance, Romance. I did an English play that was in America in Los Angeles, Topocana Martyrs Day. I mean, I have done other things, and they're always there on offer. But I had to get, my priority was that what do I enjoy doing the most? And it, it's really being with other musicians, I think, you know, because it's so, it, I was led to it by my wife because it seemed like every, all the people that were my friends, even if they were a doctor or an actor, when the guitar came out, when everyone had finished dinner, we would always do music. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do Macbeth. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's like that we got a new neighbour, Jeff Bridges, this actor, and... 
we go round to his house and one of the Beach Boys comes round and we do God Only Knows and we do Bebopalula and we do we don't do any Herman's Hermit songs we do Beatles songs and everything because that's what I if I wasn't a professional musician that's what I would do every night after dinner and that's good because he's not a professional musician but that's what he wants to do really and I, I'm lucky that I can do it for a living now you said that a couple of years ago you came over here and were quite shocked and almost disappointed that people didn't recognise you like they used to do now, the big thing with this tour is that you're going to see a completely different... Well, the same people that perhaps used to cheer for you years ago, but they're quite a bit older. Does that, do you think that's going to disturb you a little bit? It, it started like that in, on, when I started about eight or nine years ago on the American tour, but what happened was by going and constantly being in people's faces and constantly on the television, eventually now we have an 18 to 45-year-old audience at the concert. So I have to think that that can happen again, otherwise you give up. You know, I mean, diminishing returns, isn't it? You know, as people... I mean, most of those 50s acts, their fans are ready to die. They don't go out anymore, you know. But as, as I know you're a happy family man now, but do you still pine for the days when girls are tearing your clothes off and screaming for you? I, I get my wife to pretend sometimes. <laughs> no, you, that was a good time, but I was a little boy, and that was the yeah. perfect time to be that kind of character that I was made into. You know, It was great to have girls running after you. just had to learn to, learn to run a bit slower, so at least one could catch you. Hopefully one or more could catch you. But hey, those were the days when that was what all uh, that was just a natural thing. You got a hit record, and suddenly there were 200 girls outside the hotel. I mean, that's con- it was good. I considered it completely normal. You know, well, it happened to the Beatles when we're stars, we'll get that. And it does happen like that. We just were, I wasn't quite prepared for the American ones. There was so much more. There were more of them. And we still had the one roadie, you know, who set the gear up and then was supposed to protect us. So the first few dates in America were pretty like I, I, I love those days. I have no... I don't have any downside on those days. You know, and I try to think... People say you only remember the good moments and everything, and I'm trying to say, when were the bad moments? You know, there just weren't any. Can I go back to your first moments now? It was um, show business in your family at all? Yeah, we, I come from a pretty extravagant kind of family. You know, it's like there's lots of arm-waving and stuff going on, and everybody's a musician. There's extroverts and introverts in, in our family, and there are a lot more extroverts than there are introverts. And my mother is very... And my brother's extra... You know, we're all outgoing sort of people. We always like to be the life and soul of the party, even if it, if it needs to get naked and run through a room full of... You know, in a restaurant, just so that we can, like, become the, the, the centre of attention. It's part of our family's heritage. My grandfather, uh, on my father's side, was uh, the, the organ player in the church, and... We used to go in the parlour, and there was a piano there that wasn't quite in tune, and sing songs all night. What were your parents involved in? They're both accountants. Extremely boring. But they're not, you know, I mean, they were very, they did very good, you know, they managed to make a career out of, uh, a career that lasts a long time. And they don't get royalties on the bookkeeping they did in 64. So what made you, what sort of inspired you to go into show business? I think, when I look back, and I think it's my mother wanted me to be in show business. I was a... What do you call that, a showbiz son or showbiz mother? Well, she was a pushy mum, was she? Well, you know, she wanted... First of all, she wanted me to take elocution lessons so that I could sound... so I could talk posh. Because she thought that that was the reason that most people from the north of England never sort of became prime minister at the t- until then. Do you think she pushed you because it was sort of her own ambitions that she couldn't fulfil, so she wanted to do it through somebody else? As to... I, I don't know. I, I just think that she was... Um, she figured that, you know, for a while I was going to be a doctor... And then suddenly I was going to be an actor, and then I was going to be a pop star, and you know, and I was good. She made it work. You know, she 
she talked me into it. I went to the school of music and I learned to talk and I learned to play the piano and I, I got the music thing down and I was the best one there and then I got an acting job on I was in Knight Errant and Coronation Street and Family Solicitor and I was like a little bit of a local Granada type star I read that uh, when you were about eight years old, you used to go to Manchester United and sell the football programmes. Is that right? I think I was a bit older than that. Yeah, I did that for a long time. And then I used to sell the evening news, you know, the half-time, Pink and the Green. And I sold programmes at Old Trafford on one week. And I, I was a very busy little entrepreneur. I needed money very badly. So it was the money rather than the football that did it, was it? No, I became a huge fan of Manchester United. It wasn't the money. I, originally, originally, I got the job so that I could get into the match for free. I was I needed money. I had a band and you know, had all these like dream things. We need a van so that we can get the programs so we won't have to pay the delivery man and then we can when the people are in the match, we can go and pick up the red, the pink and the green over there, so we'll need a van. So I signed my father's name on a credit thing, you know, a higher purchase agreement. And I got a, I got the credit which is incredible. And luckily I was able to pay it off, otherwise I would probably be dead by now. And then it was, I was just one of those guys, I would do anything for money. I really, a hustler, people call it an entrepreneur nowadays, but I was the person that, if I knew somebody who had a window cleaning round, I would try and get it by having a ladder. Because I said, that's not a bad business, because all you need is you could borrow a ladder. Are you still into Manchester United? I'm more into Liverpool, amazingly. My parents moved to Liverpool, right. but I've... I've had amazingly good memories of Manchester United. I don't know much about them now. I know a lot about Liverpool because my brother-in-law is, goes to every game and my brother calls me every week and says he couldn't even be Birmingham. <laughs> what does your brother do? And what's his name and how old is he? He's 23 and he's called Damon and he works as a truck lift driver for Heinz. But he's also becoming a singer very and a good singer. He's a better singer than me, I'll tell you. How come he's so much younger than you are? Because we come from a family of um, people who love each other a lot. So, you know, so we've got lots of brothers and sisters, you know. Oh, you have? There's, there's more than just the two. Oh, yeah, I've got... Tell me all from 40... Denise, who's 49, me, who's 47, Suzanne, who's 28, Louise, who's 25, and Damon, who's 23. Are you still into Coronation Street? I haven't seen it for years. I see it when I'm in Canada because the old... They have reruns up there. Pretty funny show, isn't it? What did you play in it? I must admit, it was before my time... Almost before my time, it was just about. In, I was Stanley Fairclough, who was Len's Fairclough's son. Len Fairclough's son. They got divorced, and my mother moved to Australia, and they wouldn't let me stay in Manchester. I had to go to Australia with her. How old were you then? You must have been very young. Nineteen sixty-one. I was thirteen. Yeah, it was a good. It was a good job as well. It was. Yeah. It was one of those experiences that prepares you for nothing is as terrifying as going on live television with a lot of lines, with people who know what they're doing when you don't, and you clearly don't. And they all protected me. You know, if I would forget a line, someone would feed the line that made me remember it's your go, you know. Uh, weren't you supposed to... Oh, uh, yes, um, I'm off to school, Mum, you know. Were you ever, ever offered a part in it again or ever offered to make a comeback in that again? No, I would like to, though. I mean, if anybody did, that would be fun to come over for England six months and be in Coronation Street. But I'm an, I'd have to have learn to do an Australian accent because I've been in Australia for 30 years. I mean, in the in the, yeah. people said we had a, a sort of conversation about it, and it was all people think that I'm actually Peter Adamson's son mm -hmm. because they they misconnect. You know, I I find myself doing it. You know, I think that John Adamson is a teacher. You know, what his name is that guy, the police sir guy. John Alderton. Yeah. John Alderton. I mm -hmm. thought he was actually. You know, I believed. I saw Morgan on the street. There's, there's that teacher fella. 
you know, so people, like once a cab driver had a go at me for not being more supportive of my father in his time of need. I said, what's wrong with my father? You know, that trouble with the girl at the swimming pool. What trouble with the girl? He's not my father. My father's... If I, my name's Noon. My father's name is Noon, not Adamson. And the guy said, get out of the cab. Yeah. He threw me out of the cab. I couldn't, I couldn't make this guy believe that I wasn't the son of the actor as opposed to the son of the character. Yeah. You were also offered a part in a Judy Garland film, I gather, and that your parents wouldn't let you do it. Is that right? I think it was some It was some weird thing. It was like almost... It was one of those things that it was like now screen test time, and it was like thousands and thousands of pounds to do this. And I don't think I was... I wanted to do... that. I, didn't, I never wanted to be an actor. I became an actor by accident. That was never my dad. I thought actors were silly. You know, when, when you... At the School of Music, there was an acting class and a music class... Musicians were all fun and laughing and giggling, and the actors were like, Why am I sent for to a gig before I've shook off the regal thoughts wherewith I reigned? You know, more feeling, cry. Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, it's like, Oh, God. You know, and they were all sort of a bit sissy. So you wanted to become a singer, is that, is that what you're saying? I, I did want to become a singer. I wanted to sort of wear a silver lame suit and shake the legs and all that, but I never got to do that until, like, Tremblers, until the 80s. But I always thought of myself as like being like an Eden Kane kind of character. Mm. The, the name of the first band that I was named in, you know, it was all bands where I was just a member of the band. But when I became the singer of the band and I put the guitars down because people told me that I just wasn't any good, I became Pete Novak, which sort of gives away what was in my head of who I was. I was going, will I ask you? You know, I, was, I wanted to be like Eden Kane or Adam Faith. Because the name Noon, I mean, it could almost be no one, couldn't it? Was there ever any body saying to you, don't have that name because it's like no one? No, but I was trying not to let people notice that because at school I was obviously known as no one all the yeah. time. Mr. No one. No one's in 3B, you know. And um, people making joke, you know, no one's perfect and stuff. You know, I, was just like, I got sick of that. Kids always get on. Kids always know that stuff. I'm sure, yes. Uh, is, it, is it true that um, Herman's Hermits was named after a cartoon because you look like this character Sherman, is that right? Exactly. We were in a pub rehearsing. We used to, we used to harass people. Like, we'll play a date for free if we can rehearse between four and when you open, you know, because schoolboys. I was a schoolboy, so we used to always find a pub that was, we'd play on a Saturday night for nothing to rehearse all week because it was practice, practice in those days. Because you know? it took us a long time to learn a song, of course. And um, the, the television was on in the part of the pub where the TV always is. The, the publican, we got the Herman bit from Sherman because we thought he was Sh- Herman and Professor Bullock, but it was the first time we'd ever seen the show. And we were going, Herman and the, the men. Herman and... Because we were looking for Farron's Flamingos, Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, Freddie and the Dreamers. It was, around then it was all these, like, one word and then a thing. So Herman and the... Herman and the... And the Call yourself the Bloody Hermits. You look like Bloody Hermits with that long hair and the... Blah, blah. Herman and the Hermits, what a great name. Because it was silly. It was the opposite of... Pete Novak and the Heartbeats. Mm. It's the it's the real opposite. One was sort of romantic, and one was nerd. Had nerd written on it. Uh, for a long time, presumably, people thought your real name was Herman, didn't they? Oh yeah, my mother even used to call me Herman because when she'd say my son Peter, no, Peter, they go, uh, well, you know. so she said my son Herman from Herman's Hermits. <laughs> How did you feel? Did you feel he'd lost your identity somewhat? I didn't care. You know, it's mm. just an, it, it wasn't like an acting job. I actually quite liked Herman because it was only me mm. you know it was just another name but it was like really weird that you know I'd have to sign my real name on my checkbook 
but people didn't know who that but it's sort of really weird it might, it's like being Lulu you know I mean she has a real name and she's got this silly name she could she could be Barbara Streisand but she's Lulu and you put that on a billboard in Vegas people think there's a burlesque show coming in you say that you fancied yourself as a bit of an Eden Kane to begin with was there ever any question that you would be the lead singer of a group uh, in no. your mind no, there was never any question that I was not only the lead singer, but I was the leader of the group. Mm. That was my rules, you know. I only chose people that, that thought that I was smarter than they were. Because most of the band were older than you, weren't they, presumably? Yeah, but, you know, we, the, the way bands get put together is totally unique. Carl was the same age as me, and we were both in the Heartbeats, and Keith Hopwood was similar age, so I was one or two years older, and he was from another band. And what happened in those days? You know, we wanted Shane Fenton and the Fentons drummer, but the Hollies got him. And we went to see Shane Fenton and the Fentons to try and steal his drummer, and we saw the Hollies there, so we never ever spoke to Bobby. Oh, God, he's bound to join. He's not going to join ours. He's going to the Hollies. So, and then, and then Leckenby and Barry Whitwen were in another band, and they were better than our two guys. And we went... So it's like none of us had any connections at all. We were from te- totally different schools, backgrounds, neighbourhoods. We didn't live near each other, and we were forced together because... I offered them more money than the bands they were in at the time, basically. You know, I'll give you... How much are you getting in that band? We're getting £4 an hour. Well, we're getting 10 Do you want to join our band? Yeah, what kind of music do you play? Yeah, what kind of music? No, I said, what kind of music do you play before you say yeah? And in those days it was, yeah, what kind of music? Because we were only workers for hire. It was said that Mickey most thought you looked like a young JFK, is that right? Did you, were you aware of that? Uh, I think it, he said that in his press release. I mean, I, I don't see the resemblance, to be, to be honest. None at all. Robin Asquith. Yeah, that's a lot of people say that. And, you know, I had a beard for us. I was doing a play in L.A., and I, had, I grew a beard, and people thought I was that guy who owns Virgin. Oh, uh, Richard Branson? Yeah, I had this, the same beard as him, because he wouldn't grow up here. No? No. Well, I went to Barbados, and they said, your wife just left, Mark. You're going to take in the, take in the private plane to the thing. And I say, do you think I'm Mick Jagger? And he says, no, you're the Virgin, man. He's lost in the shirt, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have the shirt on. There's a lot of people get very nostalgic. I mean, obviously, this tour shows about the 60s and things. Was it as good at the time as people reckon it is now? I think it was much better than people realised it was. I didn't realise it was so good until I'd say, there's nothing quite so good as that happened. There was definitely a, an amazing renaissance. You know, the Be- it's, the, it's the Beatles. Every, everything's changed because of them. They made working-class men welcome at the ad-lib club, you know, because they were the Beatles, eh? Cliff Richards and those guys could always get in there because they were from here. They were from London. They were sort of, oh, you know, it's one of those pop chappies. He can come in. But suddenly the Beatles, now suddenly everywhere, like, well, we've got to let them in there. They're the Beatles. Mm. And they sort of opened all those doors for us, and we were allowed. I had the greatest time in those days. I'd go with John Lennon to the Ad Lib in New York. I could go to to see Bob Dylan and, you know, and sit at the table with Bob Dylan. That's pretty amazing. All the people that I liked, I got, I got to meet instantly. Give us a good Beatles anecdote. Is there any good stories you remember of the Beatles, John Lennon or whatever? Well, I, I, like, I like John the best because he was the most accessible and that's not the impression he gave everyone. And he was accessible to me because he was also roaming towns as the cave in the caveman mode while Paul was going out with Jane and uh, Maureen and Ringo and George and Patty. And John was like, his thing wasn't quite so successful. His marriage wasn't quite so successful. And he was out and about, and we'd do Thank You Lucky Stars or something in Birmingham, and I'd say, where are you going tonight? And he says, I'm going to London to the ad-lib. I said, can I come with you? Because you're a kid, you don't know that 
You would never say that now. I would never, I'd never dare say that now. Now I see people that are really famous and I haven't got the nerve to go up to them, but then you're a kid. Can I come with you? So he says, I don't have to let you in because you know, you know, you're like, how old are you? Old are you? So I said, well, I'll say I'm 18. You know, so I said, I'm 18, but they wouldn't serve me a drink. So he says, you get two, Bacardi, you get two Cokes and I'll get two Bacardis. Because <laughs> it was a two-drink minimum, he got the two Bacardis and the waiter knew what was going on and then put the glass of, put the Bacardi in one and put it, took one of my Cokes. And that's great that there was someone, and he's, uh, he, he knew what was going on, which he, he was, because we were all interested in each other's careers in those days, not competitively. Like, if my record was number one, he says, hey, great, your record's number one in America, well done. You know, not many rock and roll people are like that nowadays, that they, they're actually reading the newspaper. And actually, the, news, the music newspapers were excellent in those days, because they actually were quite factual. You know, they weren't, they weren't, um, they weren't critical. They just... Factual, you know, they would tell a, a day out with John Lennon, and we went to the ship, and we had a few beers, and we done it, smoked mm-hmm. a cigarette, constant chain smoking, uh, papier mice, gitan, and, and it was kind of interesting. It was very interesting to me now. And then one time, he's now he smokes lark cigarettes, and they weren't to do with, and the music was sort of in there. You bought the record. You didn't want somebody to tell you what the record was like. You went and listened to it and decided for yourself whether it was good or bad. So nowadays, the music press are actually like. They think they're like music critics or something, you know. And that doesn't... I don't like that system. How did you feel when John Lennon was shot dead? Horrible. I couldn't... I know. I was writing a song with a guy in... Uh, I was in Los Angeles, in Beverly Hills, amazingly enough. And uh, we, everything just fell apart. It just, it was, everything stopped. Everybody, you know. And this is Beverly Hills. These are the most blasé nincompoops in the world. You know, they're all, like, looking around to see if anybody's noticed... And we went to we went to a bar for a drink, and like everyone was there, so it's like almost on par with that Kennedy one, you know. Mm. I was more upset the Bobby Kennedy one because I thought it was just a one-off, and then I said, well, that's the way it's going; they're going to get everybody eventually. Mm. So, but it was like the day that Kennedy was shot, where everyone was like sort of stunned at mm. how could such a thing happen, and everybody cared a lot about him, you know. Had you stayed in touch with him right to the end? No, I didn't see him for four or five years before he died. I never was in the same place as him. Who are you still your mates out of all the 60s groups and things? I see Eric Burden, I see Donovan, I see lots of people who weren't in bands as well, amazing, like, like managers of bands and, mm. and characters. Some journalists like Norrie Drummond, mm. you know, those kind of... Norrie Drummond who worked for the NME. And when I'm back, I'm going to get all those people. What happened when I moved to Santa Barbara? The last nine years, I've been a real... It seems to be like a, almost a hermit-type lifestyle. I live in the country. I never did that. I always lived in Liverpool or Manchester or London or New York. I live in the countryside, and all my friends now are people who've got children the same age as me. I've sort of turned into my dad a little bit, you know. I can just go back to sort of 60s superstars. Things. At the height of the Herman's Hermit's fame, it said that you went on holiday to Hawaii and you actually interviewed Elvis Presley. Is that right? The worst interview you've ever heard of. It's absolutely pathetic. I can't believe it, with no preparation, you know. I called my sister and said, I mean, what shall I ask him? She said, ask him, does he dye his hair? How did you come to do that interview? And tell us about that. I, I was a hustler. I saw my manager and I met Tom Parker, who had no idea who Herman's Hermits were. And when we explained that we just sold out 25,000 seat, seats at the Hula Bowl, he wanted to know more about Herman's Hermits because he was an, a hustler. And, and there was a disc jockey there, and uh, Elvis was making a movie in Hawaii. The disc jockey knew him, and the way that we could get in to meet him was to do an interview. So it's the guy from Herman's Hermits that sold out the hula bowl, and he got with a mic and said, I'd like to ask you some questions. 
because Colonel Parker only accepted things if there was some promotional value. Was it a big deal for you to meet Elvis? Huge deal, but I pretended it wasn't because I'd already met John Lennon and all these people, and I'd learned that it wasn't cool to sort of go completely over the top. Oh, oh, God, can I have your autograph? My sister, she loves you. I didn't want to do that, so I acted cool, and he he was he disarmed me completely because he was very funny, and I'd never see nobody ever. He never did those chat shows and everything, and we would have found out that this guy was a great, very, but very quick-witted as well. You know, and he talked slowly, so you got time to sort of digest the joke. He had sort of an English kind of style, which made everybody, all English people, laugh, and it, dis- it was disarming. Whereas all the other guys there were Americans from the South like him, and they laughed because it was his joke. How long did this meeting last? Well, the tape part lasted about five minutes, and as soon as the tape thing got finished I stayed until the first shot of the movie then I had to leave does the tape still exist yeah it's all over the place it's bootlegged all over America the interview with Elvis because he didn't do interviews it's not that they want to hear me interviewing Elvis they want to hear Elvis doing an interview he didn't do them then I quite frequently saw him because he, he felt comfortable with people that he actually knew were okay and I understand that and like once he was in LA to see Jackie Wilson and two, two of the guys who worked with him are still great friends and Joe Esperito and Jack, Jerry Schilling uh they called me and said, Elvis wants to go to the trip or the Red Admiral Club or something to see Jackie Wilson. Do you want to come with us? I didn't care if Jackie Wilson was on, even though I loved him, but I, would, I definitely would like to go out with Elvis to a, a concert. So we all went there, and he, once again, he was he's hilarious. He was hilarious. Very, very funny guy. Now, he was one person that people say was taken advantage of. He wouldn't have gone downhill the way he did, and he wouldn't have died so early had he been properly looked after. I think people who do any kind of abuse, like serious abuse, like heroin, it's, it's a big disappointment. I think Elvis was disappointed that, that it didn't turn into what everybody thought was actually happening. Because he was just a regular, normal kind of person. And you would think that all this stuff would bring you happiness and joy and pleasure. And I think he was disappointed that his life never got... He still liked the ginger hair. You know, he liked girls called Ginger and Mitzi. And he never met, like, somebody who was smarter than him or some woman who could take care. So all those people saying, you take, only take, no, nobody, people in show business are screaming out loud to be taken advantage. People will sell their soul to the devil for a number one record. Why do you think you weren't taken advantage of? Do you think you were too smart for everybody? No, I'm sure I was taken advantage of. I just don't care. So if they did and they made some money, that's fine with me. Everybody you haven't, you haven't, you've done pretty well, haven't you? survived extremely well, haven't you? I've never stopped working, though. The people who've really done well stopped working. But if, I noticed that Elvis never stopped working either. I mean, if he was so wealthy from all these hundreds of millions of records, he was still working, he needed more, more, I need more, more money. I don't, I don't know about that, because people don't necessarily do it for the money. I mean, you yourself <laughs> say that you like to be keep the recognition bit up, don't you? It's insecurity, yeah. isn't it, as much as anything else? Yeah, well, you know, it's the only job I can do. So I'm sort of stuck in this. I'm stuck in show business, and I'm not trained to do anything else now. My only disappointments were that I wasn't able to, at the end of Herman's Hermits, carry on working in an upward thing. I mean, it spiralled down amazingly, you know. I mean, it was people... People would lie and say, Peter Noon, formerly of Herman's Hermits, you know, that that stuff came up, and I wasn't able to work unless people could mention Herman's Hermits because I was not, I was nothing if I wasn't in Herman's Hermits. So I was really disappointed, but I avoided the abuse because I sort of knew that if I kept bashing away at it, never realised it would take me 20 years to get going again. Was it your idea that Herman's Hermits comes to an end, came to an end? I wanted to leave from about 67 on, which we made a lot of records and a lot of tours from then. I just, I just felt kind of... I had too much ambition for, for, for the whole operation. Did that cause a lot of resentment for a while? 
all the resentment was called because I didn't, I wasn't, I was too young to realize that how you, how people's feelings could be hurt from something that you didn't think was important. You know, now in retrospect, when you look that I did all the interviews, I didn't realize that they were hurt. I thought they were happy to stay in bed all day. And I would get up at six o'clock in the morning, do all the radio shows, go and tour them. And, and when you go on Ed Sullivan's show, Ed Sullivan goes over to the singer and shakes his hand and, and ignores you. What am I going to say to Ed? Hey, my guys. Now, that's what Frank does. You know, Frank Sinatra would have thought of that. Mentions every songwriter, every musician on the stage. I didn't do that because I didn't know any better. And like we, the, the, the biggest disaster that I did was probably hurt their parents' feelings. And it, it was purely not my fault. We did the Royal Command performance, and at the end... They are only one person from every operation, like the Czechoslovak in Prague choir and Tito. Only one person from each band or orchestra was introduced to the Queen Mother. Now, you know, every English mum wants their son to have a picture with the Queen Mother. She's like the heroine of all time, right? And they weren't invited to that thing. And it was looked to their parents and to them like a snub. But I had nothing to do with the decision. You said you were very ambitious when you when the group split up. What were you ambitious to do? Like everybody who's successful, I thought I could do everything myself. I was ambitious to get in the studio with just me and Mickey Most and not have to mention these other people because by now they weren't playing on the records anyway. So my ambition was to take it all for me. No more democracy, no more asking people questions, just do things. If you'd known then what you were going to go on and do, do you think you'd be satisfied at that stage? Well, if I'd known now what I know then, I would never have called the band Herman's Hermits. I would have chosen the name a la Rolling Stones, who didn't know that their name was going to have any afterlife, or The Who, or something that at least didn't look cute. Actually, what I was meaning is, at the end of Herman's Hermits, when you, you said you had great ambitions and things, if you knew then what you were going to go on and achieve in, the, in this meantime, do you think you'd been happy with what you've done? Oh, now I, I, I don't regret having left Herman's Hermits. I just wish it hadn't taken 20 years to get it back again. Mm. And the only reason it came back was really I, I, had, I worked and I worked and worked and went and did the show doing Herman's Hermits songs, doing the show and television. And, and what happens is that there was no way we could have survived any longer than we did anyway. We already went a couple of years more than we should have done. Did you want to go into theatre, do a bit of films and all this sort of thing? I just wanted to do more things and mm. sing ten songs every night. I wanted to be able to, maybe if there was a Broadway show, it took me a long time to get it, but I did do it. You know, if I set, if when I focus my mind, this is, I have to do that, and that's what I want to do. I mean, more important to me, my gold record is my review from Broadway and the Hirschfeld in the New York Times, because it was like the first rock and roll singer who ever got his picture, you know, whoever got of Hirschfeld. So that was kind of an honor, and uh, and it took, it took me much longer than that. You see, I thought that everything happened instantly because I was, I started a, I mean, for the three years from starting in the band to having a number one record, that's, in those days, was a long time. Does it hurt not to be able to have number one records just like that, like you used to do? Did that become difficult to get acclimatised to? Well, it, it, it's really weird. I, I shouldn't say this because it's sort of not very good professionally, but I'm not really that... I'm not worried about records at the moment. It, it's, not what, it's not on my list. It's not even in my top ten priorities. The most important thing to me is to get my live show right so that I can show people that this music actually has some meaning and it's really good, and, and, and that's worked in America. People say, I, God, I didn't realise you had so many hits. I thought you just had Henry VIII and Mrs. Brown, you got a lovely daughter. And I say, those weren't even released in England. Mm. And, and that's good. So you, I've proved to myself that it wasn't just a, a flash and a fluke. It wasn't like a monkey's thing that was all programmed and get these 20 songwriters. It was actually a conscious affair to make records that were about up things and 
And Mickey Most was like at least 95% of Herman's Hermits. And I like, at the time, I believed I was 50%, and that they weren't included in the reason that we were a success. Early on in your solo career, you did a couple of songs with David Bowie. Are you still mates with him? Have you got any great David Bowie stories? I don't have any great David Bowie stories. I see, I see him in restaurants in New York and ask him... I, he, he said to me one time that next time you make a record, I want to play piano on it again, which is good. I don't have any great David Bowie stories. I used, to, I used to go and see all his gigs when he first started out. I was a fan of David Bowie's. All his songs were great. Some of the songs he played me that he's never recorded, there's one called Bombers. It's like absolutely amazing story, you know, about... Oh, I can even remember it. It's like 25 years. Oh, clear. Very good song. Mm -hmm. And he's a very, very clever. We were at Top of the Pops. He was playing on the piano on Top of the Pops. And we went into one of those studios with a piano in it. And he played me all his new songs. I was like blown away. It was like Graham Goldman, the same thing. You know, another guy who every song he played me was a hit. You set up a company with Graham Goulburn quite early on, didn't you? And you also started a boutique in New York, apparently, didn't you? What ever happened to that? The company with Graham Goulburn was the Zoo Boutique. What happened with it is, is that as soon as I lost interest, once the glamour had gone off of, like, having Jimi Hendrix buying his clothes in my store and stuff like that, and once I wasn't there promoting it, it sort of just went away. You know, then, then people started to, like, walk out with clothes that that they hadn't paid for and stuff, you know. Sounds like the Beatles' Apple store, doesn't it, really? It's exactly the same thing. But at least I had a good... While it was happening, me and Steve Lyons, the guy who invented all these clothes, we were taking the piss and nobody knew because it was time. It was still time that you could get away with that. It's called a zoo and it was a tire for the male animal and it had astroturf on the ground. And if your girlfriend wanted to... or your mother wanted to check the suit out, you had to go in the cage... You know, you couldn't get out of the dressing room back into the shop. So you would stand in this animal cage to show off the clothes. And, you know, it was very funny. And we used to, people used to do it en masse. You know, people would get in, you know, put the clothes on and, hey, Beryl, what's this like? You know, and, and it was all, you know, we would, it was all Carnaby Street stuff marked up 500%. Career-wise, you're doing so many different things at the moment. Is that how you like it, how you like to be very versatile, or would you rather have gone down one avenue, do you think? Well, I, I'm trying to get more one avenue because I do do too many things, and that sometimes you don't concentrate enough on one thing to get it right. You know, So this, this is the year of the touring. Two years ago, we did 100 dates. Last year, because the TV stuff was all over the place, we could only do 50 dates. This year, we've already got 130 on. We're probably going to do 200 this year. What about your acting and your TV presenting and things? Those will come on the TV presenting. I've got 174 in the can, as they say over there. And they can run them forever, because there's no dates on the show. I mean, and then when it's time to do some new more, I'll take a month off and go and do another series of 13. Because it doesn't take a whole week to make each show like... English television, you know, those series. It's, we can do four a day sometimes. So you really are in the position in America where you can just do whatever you want any time? Well, I'd like to say that. I would, wish I could ask for more money. I've still got a price, you know. But I, I, like to be, I like for people to think of me for other things. But this year I can't do them because I've made myself too busy doing one thing, which is tour. This is the year of the touring. Because my manager thinks that this is the time. You know, you probably won't be able to do that when I'm 60. But if I... If, if I grow up and do, like, Danny Kay, that would be more important to me than to be Elvis. That's the guy I want to be, uh, Danny Kay. Tell us about the house you have in Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, whatever. Does it have many souvenirs of your career in there? It doesn't have any modern souvenirs of my career. I think it's only got from, like, 1989 onwards. It's sort of all the modern career that is impressive. I like all the new stuff. I've got the Hirschfeld, 
you know, that's 83. I don't want to clutter up my house with stuff like that, you know. I mean, I'd rather have pictures of my friends on the walls. You know, that's what, that's what we've got. We've got, like, photographs of all our friends everywhere. Is it a luxurious house, one that you sort of always aspired to? No, it's the... I've had... I had the luxury house in Denham Village in Buckinghamshire. It was, like, this huge house with three acres and bedrooms all over the place and gold trappings and... That and, was during the 60s and 70s? Yeah. yeah. And my wife and I, we, we went straight from that to a one-bedroom apartment because we, we needed the opposite. You know, we went from that with the gardeners and the staff and the things, and that was well, not our style. We like to live closer than that, you know. We like to be eat dinner, three of us, and stuff like that, you know. What luxuries do you allow yourself now, though? No sauna, no swimming pool. We've got three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a kitchen, a den, a living room, and a patio. That's it. The difference living out there is you don't get sort of fans turning up at your doorstep, do you? Because the people just accept you for what you are over there. You couldn't. Nobody can find my house. Even people who've been there a few times still can't find it. It's sort of hidden away. It's tucked away a little bit. I mean, it's not remote, but it's it, Montecito, where we live, is sort of like that. There's not any, you know. There's much bigger stars living there than me. You know, I mean, Jeff Bridges and Michael Douglas live around the corner. Nobody bothers them either. Tell me a bit about your family then, because I don't know much about you. You got married at 21, didn't you? Yeah, I've got. I've had the same wife for 26 years, and I have an eight-year-old daughter called Natalie. And our house is all about. It's a music house. It's like there's music stands everywhere, and violins, and guitars, and pianos, and electric keyboards. Let's just whiz back to how you met your wife. Uh, my wife's name is Mireille. M I R E I L L E, and we met at the Bag of Nails uh, because we both heard that Jimi Hendrix was going to play there. It's an, an old club. It's a pretty famous club from the 60s. And she was on holiday from France, and everyone had told her the club to go to was the Bag of Nails because Gino Washington and the Ram Jam Band were on, and Jimi Hendrix was going to show up and jam. And we met there. And uh, we got married about five months later. People must have uh, been a bit sceptical of you getting married at 21 when you were the most desirable man in Britain almost. That seemed to me to be old. By the time I was 21, I'd done an awful lot. I was pretty worldly for a 21-year-old. You know, I'd already, like, had six huge American tours. And, and I, you know, I, I was lucky I found the right woman. She sort of saved me from it all, because I was probably going to, like, fall apart at some time. And uh, she was straight and normal and easy to live with and would go with me and deal with all this stuff with me. Is this basically how you've managed to survive all these years? Because, I mean, in show business, of all businesses, it's bloody difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure that is. One of the reasons is the family I came from, and the second reason, equally important, is the family I got now. You know, the way I was brought up is that, that everything is like it's the security blanket family. You know, and she she came from a good family. We're nice and close. You know, she speaks to her two sisters every day, and we all were, we're similar in those things. Where about is she from? She's from France. Tell us about your children. One child, Natalie. One child. Natalie's eight. Who's um, a bit of a whiz kid musician. She doesn't show off, you know, it's not like we're pushing her out. I mean, she wanted to play the violin. I said, don't play the violin, play the guitar, you can sing along and play the piano. Nope, I want to play the violin. So she got a violin when she was two and a half, and she's been playing it every day for two, for six and a half years, and uh, she's fantastic, she's very good. She's trilingual, she speaks French. She reads and writes in French, English, and Spanish. I was going to ask you, which language was she brought up on? My wife never speaks English to her. And, and we have a housekeeper, and she's not allowed to speak English to her. How's your French? My French is fabulous. It always was. <laughs> really? Yeah, I had a good teacher, Father Murray. I liked the teacher, so I got good at it. So it sounds like your daughter's sort of angling to go to show business a little bit. 
follow you in your footsteps? Well, you know, she wanted to be a fire engine driver, and now, and right now she wants to be, she wants to work with poor people. You know, she's going through all those ones right now. So, I don't think she'd be a musician. You see, because we've music is pleasure in our house. It's not a business. Mm. It's we do it for fun. My wife is not musical at all, which is really funny. She's got a nice singing voice, but she's never, and she can play the piano, but she doesn't. She does something else while we do the the music thing. Do you think it's a good thing your wife came from another country and she wasn't quite so starstruck as perhaps some of the English women would have been? I mean, she'd never heard of Herman's Hermits. She had no idea who we had to explain. I said, you've got to come on a gig before you get married see what this is all about. Did she like the sound of Herman's Hermits? Yeah, she did. She liked Sunshine Girl. That was the record that came out when I first met her and I said, look, let me play. This is my new record. And what about Natalie? Does she, is she aware of your heritage, as it were? Since a week. She's, a week ago, she's... I, Somebody sent me a Japanese... I don't have a house full of Herman's Hermits records. Mm. You know, I said, I don't need them. They all got gave, given away over the years anyway. Mm. So there was a Japanese one that somebody sent me to check out all the copyright things on it. So I put it on, and, and she has a computer with a CD player in it. And uh, she started to listen while she was playing those computers, you know, whatever they're doing computers. I can't work, so I don't know. And uh, every time I call her now, I can hear this Herman's Hermit oh. stuff on the background. And she's learning the harmonies. She thinks she'd like to help me with to improve the harmonies now because she's good at harmony from the violin stuff. So when you go on tour are you going to bring them over here your family? Oh absolutely we're going to move in here we're going to get an apartment she's, I'm going to try and get her in a school in London because it, the, the tour is a blast for me because in England when you tour America everything is a huge amount of pressure you get you finish the gig in Phoenix you get up in the morning take a plane a thousand miles is nothing over there most of our trips are over two thousand miles in America so you can't really take your family with you. in England Chelmsford Croydon I mean, I can be home at 11.30 and spend the whole day together and I can leave at 4 o'clock in the traffic to go to Scarborough. So you're going to buy an apartment in London or up in Manchester? Here, in London. We're going to, we're going to rent one for a couple of months and see, find out where we want to live. Probably in Knightsbridge, because then Mireille will be able to meet people that can speak more than one language. Are we going to have you over here permanently one day, do you think, or are you in, in America to stay, really? I've never been anywhere to stay. I thought I was going to go and move to France forever, but that didn't. That lasted a few years. I am not. I'm not a permanent kind of person. I mean, even where we live now, I keep saying we couldn't. We should move to Connecticut, and I don't have to fly so much. Mm. I don't know where I'm going to live. I'm going to see how it goes. That that's not part of my plan. Where I, right now, my plan is to stay exactly where I am, forever. But to be able to travel more with my family instead of travelling on my own. What are your career ambitions from now? What are you What are you hoping to do? I, my plan is just to be able to tour more and more. I, I mean, my career ambitions, I've already done those. Now what I want to do is to show everybody how good I am. You know, I'm sort of like Danny Kay, really. You know, it's like, you know, I've done the rock and roll thing and I've done the Broadway thing, so that sort of makes me feel like a bit more of an all-rounder than, than Freddie Garrity, maybe. So what I'm going to do is just keep trying to find things to stimulate me. It's all about... There has to be a lot of fun involved in things that I do. Otherwise, I can't get behind it. I'm from the period where... You know, being in Herman's Hermits was easy, and it was all fun. And when it's not fun, it's hard. You know, I'm glad I got songs that, that are fun to sing, you know, rather than ones where you have to warm up for three and a half hours, like Pavarotti's got, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I can't really see you singing Ness and Dorm or something. I, I auditioned for La Boheme on Broadway. They said, we're looking for somebody who looks a bit more Italian than you. 